Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben here. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 445 for April 13th, 2022. My guest today is Michael Parent. He is a returning guest. He was here previously on episode 395. He's here to talk about a new book that was just released yesterday called The Lean Innovation Cycle. So we'll be talking about that. And uh, if you want to learn more about the book and about Michael and his work, you can look for links in the show notes in your favorite podcast app, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 445. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Again, our guest today is Michael Parent, and he's joining us again. He is a returning guest. He was here as a guest in episode 395. If you want to go check that out, look in the feed or go to leanblog.org slash 395. Uh, Michael is the managing director of his company, Michael Parent Consulting Services. He is also a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt with AAA Auto Club Group. Um, Before I tell you a little bit more, let me say first off, welcome back, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Michael has a new book that has been recently released here in April. It's titled The Lean Innovation Cycle, a multidisciplinary framework for designing value with lean and human-centered design that is out from Routledge Press. So today we're going to take a deep dive into those topics, looking at kind of uh, complementary nature, intersection, comparisons between um, lean and human-centered design frameworks. So you know, before we, we dive into the details, uh, yeah, I always like to ask authors, Michael, like what, what was the spark? What was the inspiration for, uh, for doing a book? Yeah. Um, you know, it's just something I guess I've kind of always wanted to do, but how this one came about was really, I, I just felt like I wanted to learn more about it. And I'm sure, you know, you've written several books and I think you even told me with measures of success, right. That was something that you just, you wanted to learn more about. So, you know, you do deep dives in it, you do literature reviews, you, you, you know, research it yourself almost as an independent study. And um, it really helps to retain the knowledge to write something about it, to, to kind of put your spin on it. And that's essentially, you know, the inspiration for it. So what, what's, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the topics um, you know, in, in some detail here. Is there anything that comes to mind that you learned in particular during the writing of the book or even like after the book has been done as you continue thinking about all this? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, a lot about the publishing process in particular is, is something I learned quite a bit about. Um, I learned it's it's very important to have um, a market-driven idea, you know, an idea that that is, uh, I don't want to say sellable, that's a little too cynical, but something that's resonating with the audience right now uh, in, in particular. So that was something I, I really learned a lot of. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say that's that's cynical. That's, uh, <laughs> it's practical, right? I mean, you, right. You, I think as uh, an author of a book, you want to write a book that's going to help people. And um, so getting some sense of the voice of the customer is, is important. How, how did you do that during or before the writing process even then? Yeah, I, um, I did a lot of market research, figuring out what books were out there. Um, like I said, this is something that uh, was peculiar to me, something that I have, you know, done some stuff in practical in as well and, and did some training in. And then as I kind of looked for more in this realm of, hey, how are people using this with Lean and Six Sigma? I didn't find anything. And I said, well, let me go find a book. Uh, you know, maybe it's not an online thing or a YouTube thing. 
you know, surely somebody's written a book about it. And I didn't see a whole lot of that uh, out there as well. So, um, you know, all that is, uh, you know, I guess kind of sparked it. And so this, this phrase human centered design, um, what, what would you say is a good operational definition of, of that phrase? What, and what, what, what does that mean practically speaking? Yeah, uh, you know, human-centered design is a problem-solving framework, just like Lean and Six Sigma. I would say there's a set of tools that go hand-in-hand with human-centered design, but just like Lean and Six Sigma, human-centered design is greater than just the toolbox. And essentially, um, what you're trying to do in human-centered design through this framework is design something, really, I I guess, to empathize with the end user, to empathize with the customer, and say, because I understand what they think and what they want and what they feel and what they desire, I can create a product that delivers more value to them than I would otherwise be able to do without this framework. So it's really more of um, a product development, product design framework that might fit together within, let's say, the lean manufacturing of said product? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be said. I mean, you know, process improvement, I think if you stretch the definition a little bit, you can probably say it's a lot of process design. Um, There's a lot about, there's a lot of design capacities within what we do from the the sheer process improvement stuff. But then certainly things like design for Six Sigma, there's huge overlaps between um, human-centered design and and some of the more rigorous design components of Six Sigma. And, And this is an approach that could apply not just to hard products that would be manufactured, but also to different services? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think in the book, I end up saying product a lot, but of course, um, you know, what, when you think about human-centered design, you're always thinking about the end user's experience. You know, user experience is, is a buzzword in and of itself. And of course, uh, service operations have the end user experience, right? Call center wait times. Again, that's very process-driven. It's very process improvement oriented, but you can see how understanding the, the uh, end user experience can really have an impact in how you design that process. Mm-hmm. So it, it can apply to, I imagine, um, software. You could think about human-centered design. I mean, is that something that can apply to consulting services and, and thinking about the, the client experience along the yeah. way? Yeah. You know, I, I certainly didn't, um, didn't think about that. I didn't bring it up in the book, but I think one of the big tenets, you know, maybe one of the themes that you get out of human-centered design is that transparency is always a good thing. Uh, The end user loves knowing what to expect, or or the more you can broadcast what the product is, what the service is, um, the more the end user uh, will feel comfortable with that. That's true in packaged goods. You walk into any grocery store, everything is in a a clear plastic case because you have to see what the product is. I think similar principles can be applied to consulting. Yeah, I think when there are bad assumptions or, or just if, if a consultant and a client are not on the same page is where little uh, you know, like potential yeah. fractures in that relationship can build up. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would agree with you giving transparency at different stages just uh, maybe helps people highlight a small concern before it becomes a big problem. That's right. Um, how would you, how would you compare human-centered design with, with something I've, I've learned a little bit more about over time, design thinking? Is there similarity? How do, how yeah. do those fit? Yeah. Um, 
you know, human-centered design and design thinking, I think, are uh, very interchangeable terms. And if you're in the industry, they would probably say that, no, design thinking is, is this and, and human-centered design is over here. Um, but for our purposes, for the purposes of the audience listening to this podcast, I'd say they're more or less interchangeable. Human-centered design is focused deeply on understanding um, the end user and, under, and empathizing with their experience. So a lot of the tools are really Gemba-focused to figure out what they're actually experiencing and feeling. Design thinking, I think, is a little bit more about prototyping, low-resolution prototyping, how you engage the end user not to sell them on the prototype per se, but really just to get candid feedback about that prototype for them. So it sounds like there's a different mindset. Earlier, you talk about tools versus mindset. The mindset is not proving yourself right. The, 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 the mindset is thinking, hey, I, I could be wrong or this is likely imperfect. How do I get useful feedback? Yeah, exactly. Um, if you have to sell somebody on your design, it's not a very good design. Uh, if you have to tell somebody how to use the design, it's it's not a good design. And it, in, intuition is a huge part of design thinking. Uh, it's a huge part of of any design process, whether that's you know a service process or or something that that we do in traditional lean manufacturing, or if it's you know designing an actual product. I mean, it seems like part of the overlap is having this customer focus, if not customer obsession. Yeah. And I mean, even I, I think from this is probably I think this is from the Toyota way. You know, um, even though that's a book in a way focused on manufacturing, you can think about the design processes and and how that flows into manufacturing and manufacturability. But you know, there are stories, uh, if I'm remembering right, of like the first generation Toyota minivan not doing well in the U.S. market. Among other, re- I think some of the reasons pointed to were uh, lack of cup holders, because that's maybe a uniquely American dynamic of requiring a lot of cup holders, even for the driver, big, big cup holders. And then I think the other dynamic was, you know, the back of the minivan, maybe this is a pickup truck story, but anyway, with one of the vehicles, discovering that Americans are much more likely to go, you know, to the big box home improvement store and be bringing home large pieces of wood that didn't fit well in the first generation vehicle. So I, you know, and, and there are stories in the book then of, I think, you know, one of the chief engineers from Japan coming over and renting American vehicles and driving across the U S and Canada and observing, um, you know, customers and how they were actually using the vehicles. It seems like that's, it's better than making assumptions or trying to prove, well, you don't, you know, try to prove you shouldn't need cup holders. Well, you know, good luck with that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you're not going to sell uh, an American audience on that. They'll just go to Ford or GM or Chrysler or something like that. Um, it, it's, it, you can see the parallels between Gemba, you know, is, is probably what that story is all about in, in the um, lean manufacturing world. But this is, you know, what we would call, you know, user engagement or something like that. Where And even within that, one of the things I like about human-centered design is it really informs us how we approach the Gemba. You're going to have different audiences. The, you know, the single mom who has two kids is going to know how to use a grocery cart in a grocery store far better than the bachelor who's picking up you know, the ice cream on a Wednesday night. So you've got you know, categories of users, you know, super users, extreme users, casual users, mainstream users, and how you compartmentalize these will um, change how you interact with them, 
what insights you gather from them and what kind of questions, how you're actually observing them. Um, so I, I think there's a lot there that can be taken, you know, at face value in human-centered design and brought right into the fold of lean and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And, and so part of what I hear you're saying is when we talk about voice of the customer, we shouldn't assume all customers are the same. So does human-centered design give us some methods for sort of segmenting or thinking about different groups of customers that would have different needs, different use cases? Yeah, and and I think a lot of that ends up being strategy. Who am I actually trying to um, market to? So that's one thing is who am I actually trying to sell to? But then you might, you know, the extreme users are going to be niche, right? They're going to be there and it's going to be a small market, but they're also going to know exactly what the thresholds of the current product offering is. They're going to know exactly, you know, if you ask them, what would you like different in this? They're going to know exactly what it is. Yeah, this is my limiting factor. This is my constraint. And if you could loosen this constraint, I I, I would be much happier for it. The general audience might not have those insights, though they could benefit from them. Um, They might just say, no, I I like the shopping cart the way it is. Uh, And and that's fine. And, and, you know, they would have never guessed that you could have, you know, a personal scanner that you go around the grocery store and and scan things with. Um, So, yeah, understanding Yes, who you're selling to, but also, are you going on a fact-finding mission for something other than just uh, selling to a customer? Yeah. So you mentioned shopping carts. I mean, I think most shopping carts now um, have that seat in the very front where a child of a certain size can uh, can ride and, and face whoever's pushing the cart. I vaguely... Yeah, I'm sure at some point I sat in that seat, but I'm sure at some point the shopping basket was only, it was assumed only to be for the items you're purchasing. And, you right. know, I'd, I'd be curious if somebody had the, 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 the spark of that idea by maybe watching a child being in a cart in a way that might be kind of unsafe or uncontrolled, um, yeah. watching a parent struggle to keep their kid with them in the store. And so I, yeah, I mean, there, at some point I'd be, I'd be curious the history of that. I'm not expecting you to know it, Michael, but (laughs) like that, I mean, it seems like if, if human centered design, I'm going to assume that improvement to the shopping cart predates these methodologies, but it, it seems like maybe it's not too much of a stretch where you might identify the need for that improvement to the shopping cart by literally going out, like you said, to the Gemba, the place where the carts actually used and observe people using the cart, you would get different insights than if you just asked people about carts, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a big thing in the book. I'm I'm not too keen on focus groups uh, for the very same reasons, right? Is is what people say they want and what people actually want are, are very, very different. And that's, I mean, just Google sur- uh, survey bias and you'll see a list of all these ways it can be biased. But if you actually go and observe and you know, maybe you interview them, maybe you just, you know, sit in an Ono circle and watch people uh, going through the produce section and you'll see how people are actually using the cart and you'll see what's limiting them. So I, I really, you know, that's the lean ethos, right? Is we're going to observe the current state and then we're going to make improvements. We're not just going to interview people. Yeah. And I think of, you know, an additional, we're getting into the weeds on uh, shopping carts here, but the, I, I use yeah. shopping carts. So it comes to mind. You know, I, at one point there was the improvement of uh, the cup holder, back mm-hmm. to cup holders again. Of you know, you may buy uh, a beverage at the, the 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 coffee stand or a water, and you're drinking that beverage as you're going through the store. 
Um, recently, I, I came across if somebody from a grocery store company or shopping cart maker was watching me, you know, I'd done some grocery shopping and then stopped at the, uh, the in-store Starbucks to get not just a beverage for myself on the way home, but for my wife. And I ended up in this situation where there was one cup holder. I had two beverages. And because the door coming out that side of the store was not an automatic open door, I was in this awkward situation of yeah. putting one drink in the cup holder with the cart and another drink and trying to imagine like, how do I open the door with my elbow or my hip? In a way? It was, thankfully, you know, the customer saw I was uh, needing some help and went ahead and pushed the door open. But I mean, maybe all of these things together, it's not just the cart, but even the design of the store of somebody noticing maybe we need an automated door at that well, spot. And, you know, in the store, you're taking for granted that there's now a Starbucks in every Target or grocery store that you walk into. That wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago, right? It, so I, it's almost like you can, you know, I don't know if this is the case, but, you know, people probably observe, hey, all these people are coming in the grocery store with a Starbucks in their hand. <laughs> you know, they're, they're getting their fix before they come into the store. Mm -hmm. um, wouldn't it be great if we just had one here? And clearly that's worked because, because they have them everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, one other thing I was going to ask you, um, that, that you said earlier, I think would be interesting to have you elaborate on this phrase, converging toward a design, whether that involves prototypes or not. Can you tell us more about that? Do you have an example of what it means to, to converge toward a design? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, when you do things creatively like brainstorming, and this is true in the lean world, when you affinity diagram and you're trying to generate solutions. You have to suspend criticism. You, you're not going to be able to both be creative and evaluate at the same time. So a lot of the techniques that come from human-centered design are also to kind of segment your workflow into creative sections, which I might be call I call divergent. So you know we're going to come up with with all these ridiculous ways to improve the shopping cart, or, or to we're going to be stuck on the shopping cart for, for the rest of our conversation. Sorry. Sorry. Um, yeah, you know, we're going to come up with all these ways to, um, you know, improve it. But then at some point, we're going to have to converge. Uh, we have finite resources and we have to move our project along. So we're going to need to figure out some constraints. The constraints might be weight or it might be, uh, you know, feasibility and manufacture. That's something we talked about already, manufacturability. Um, it might be the cost to, to actually manufacture the product. So all these things, by putting in some constraints, we can start to weed out um, some of the factors uh, that, that it takes to um, you know, improve it. And then we, we're left with kind of more of a dominant design um, that we can continue to work on, converge, fine tune, get it in front of the customer. Um, you know, the customer's interaction with a prototype is a huge way to converge because they're going to tell you exactly what they don't like about it, what doesn't make sense to them. They don't know how to use it. All of those things are essentially converging around a solution. Oh, it has to be more intuitive to use. It has to be lighter weight. They can't pick it up. Um, the, these sorts of things. So it's it's a um, push and pull kind of where, mm -hmm. maybe not push and pull, but it's, you know, you've got one aspect of you're trying to be creative. You're trying to generate solutions. And then, you know, with a delicate balance, you're also trying to converge onto something that's feasible that the customer actually, or I'll say the end user actually wants. It seems like, yeah, a, a push and pull seems like a good way of describing where you know maybe, maybe some organizations pay 
research and development people or product development people to dream up ideas that might be pushed out on the market where there's maybe an approach um, for customer pull. It may be through their words or um, as, as you're talking about and as you're writing about, um, it, it may come out through observing what, what, what they're accomplishing or what they're unable to accomplish given current versions of a product. Yep, that's right, that's right. So um, before taking a deeper dive into you know, some of the connections here, um, you know, I'd, I'd ask you up front, you know, what, what, what sparked the book, but maybe even going back a little bit earlier than that, Michael, what, what sparked your interest in moving beyond Lean and Six Sigma into even exploring um, human-centered design? Yeah, I, um, I was in an MBA course at the College of William & Mary, and one of the first courses I took was in human-centered design, design thinking, and I was blown away by it. Um, I, I think at that time, I wasn't a full black belt yet in Six Sigma, but I definitely saw uh, parallels. And you know, one of the things, the activities that I had to do was they gave me the prompt, design a wallet. And I said, this is going to be a piece of cake. Like I, I know what my wallet looks like. I want to design something like that. And then I got paired with a female, uh, a woman in my group. And, um, you know, female uh, ideas of wallets are very different uh, than men's ideas. They have different constraints. It doesn't have to fit into their back pocket. They might want things more than just a couple credit cards and their ID. Um, So as you start really empathizing with uh, what other people's constraints are, it took me in a radically different direction um, of what my preconceived notions were. So I, I saw direct value from that. And that really started sparking um, kind of my interest in human-centered design. I'll also say uh, I'm left-handed, and you don't get very far in life as a lefty without noticing that everything is designed for a right-handed person. And that, you know, as you kind of have this framework, it kind of resonated with me to say, ah, there's a, there's a way I can, you know, start start taking taking back a little bit uh, and, you know, try using a chainsaw with your left hand is all I have to say. I mean, I, I, scissors came to mind. My my mother's <laughs> left my mother's left-handed, so I remember the frustration of, as a righty, grabbing the left-handed version. Of <laughs> I'm just looking here on my desk. I'm not going to go through everything on my desk. Um, thankfully, the stapler is sort of a, a yeah. ambidextrous design. But even looking at my uh, keyboard and trackpad, yeah, uh, at least maybe there's flexibility. Do you put the mouse or the trackpad over to the left for your dominant hand? Yes, I do. Um, you'll notice that the arrow keys are on the right-hand side, as is the number pad, if you have that, which is uh, a bias uh, for the right-handed person. Uh, <laughs> if you use anyone else's mouse, the the buttons themselves, you will have to, to click. So it's not just a matter of positioning on the desk. It's actually the buttons. You'll have to click with your uh, middle finger. So well, you, I, I, we can keep going if you want. No, that's oh, all right. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to think through, um, you know, it's a good example of, of empathy and customer understanding of assuming, yeah. not assuming every customer is like you, whether that's, um, that's right. gender or handedness, or there are even some stories out there in tech world of when certain products don't uh, get tested on uh, a range of people with different skin colors, that there can be problems right. or assumptions that come out of that. So um, back to that point of not all customers being the same or having the same needs. Um, so yeah, in, in the book, you explore a lot of the overlap and 
you know, either you know, similarity or complementary nature to lean and six sigma. So how, how would you describe that in a nutshell of what human-centered design adds to lean or six sigma? Yeah, I, I think it informs a lot of what we do. Uh, I, I think it there are things, like I said, you can take for face value, like different interactions on the Gemba. I think there's a strong additive relationship that we can just grab that and throw it into the fold of Lean Six Sigma. I think there are other things um, like the environment of how we engage the Obeya, right? When we set up an Obeya room, um, I go into it a little bit in the book of, you know, almost a worker space. What does that look like for, for a creative process to generate new ideas? Um, the physical space is so important in Lean and, and we need to understand that when we're trying to be creative because it's not just having, you know, visual management and charts on the board like we would in Obeya. Um, but certainly there are areas uh, like that. And then I think it ultimately drives, I think there's a lot of additive value with um, adding value and getting to what the customer actually desires and wants. I think that's really, you know, the ethos of lean um, and, and any tool that we can use to, to accomplish that is really should be welcomed in the lean community. Yeah. And um, as a, a terminology check for listeners who might not know, uh, Obeya or Obeya room is sometimes called um, big room or some people use uh, war room or strategy deployment room. I've heard different phrases, but, but that is a part of, and you, you touched on this in the book, um, what, what's either called strategy deployment or Hoshin Conry. Yep. And it seems like when you have these boards uh, on the wall in these rooms, um, there's an opportunity to, to think of, um, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this, like human-centered design in terms of how the board is put together. Like are the charts readable and understandable in the way that they're formatted and, and displayed? Um, yeah. You know, is, is the X matrix uh, a tool that that's 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 readable or intimidating you know there's a lot of debate around that right right yeah you know when we're talking about the obeya too i i always think of um like uh the nasa command in houston right everybody's facing the same direction that's that's important everybody's on the same page there's the same objective everybody has the same data the screen you know especially like the 1960 you know apollo 13 mission or whatever you know, they've got the same stuff on the board. Everybody's on the same page. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's a, a huge part of the physical layout, but then to your point of, are these tools actually approachable? Uh, I think that is probably a gray area that is not just about the tools, but also applies to how we engage people, um, you know, our stakeholders and, and are we actually having respect for people? by training them and getting them to uh, buy into the tools, or are we just giving them a, a template and say, fill out the X matrix? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the same thing can apply to an A3 and at its worst, you know, at, at its worst, I'll hear people talk about, you know, I've heard this in healthcare, it could happen other places of having a metric of, well, it's easy to track. Well, how many A3s have been filled, quote unquote, filled out I mean, like filling out the form and using it well are not necessarily the same right. thing. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, you know, and I think in terms of maybe similarities in terms of uh, tools, uh, things that may have a similar mindset. Um, when, when, when I hear people talk about mapping a customer journey, how, how does that 
in your mind, Michael, connect to the idea of value stream mapping? Yeah, I, I like um, to use something that they call, yeah, um, customer, what do they call it? Yeah, customer journey value stream mapping is I think what oh, I call it. Kind of, book. A, kind of a hybrid? Yeah, exactly. And essentially, um, you have to understand process. You, you, I mean, that, that's just fundamental to what we do. Uh, every business, every, everything is, is based on it. Um, but when you understand process as well as kind of those emotional components of, of how the customer feels uh, during, during these process moments, you can start to understand um, a greater empathy for that person. So uh, in the book, I go into a very famous example of Pfizer, excuse me, not Pfizer, uh, Procter & Gamble, I believe it was them, going in and trying to sell more uh, household cleaner products. And what came out of it was the Swiffer uh, because they understood the process that, wow, there's a lot of non-value added, yes, from the lean perspective of filling up a bucket of water, waiting for, it to, waiting for the water to get hot, adding the, the soap, moving the heavy bucket to the workstation, right? Because you're filling it up in the bathtub. All of this has a process component, which you could say is non-value added, yes. But I mean, it's frustrating to sit there and wait for the water to heat up and you're wasting water. It's difficult, you know, if you're using the, the laundry sink downstairs to carry it up the stairs. So when you start to really put the, the empathy behind these process tasks, not just, not just the non-value edit, though that's part of it, you really start to dial in to uh, areas of really great improvement. And then you can really start to um, pivot on, on what your design is. And in that example, you know, their design was not to create a new uh, household tool called the Swiffer. It was, to, it was to sell more cleaning product. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's been a very, it seems like a very successful product over a couple of decades of uh, right. both the dry and then the wet version that sprays instead. So it eliminates the need for carrying that bucket around. That's right. That's right. Yep. And the waiting. Yep. Yep. And the drying. And uh, you, they they sell those refills that snap in perfectly. That's probably a good margin compared to a generic <laughs> bottle of soap. Right, for sure. That's why I, 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 I'm pretty sure that's one of those models. Like they talk about the razors and blades business model. You basically give away the razor or the Swiffer, knowing that you're going to sell uh, compatible, compatible things. And, yeah, the switching cost, right? Yeah, and then you know, as, as times change, or as as things evolve, decades after the beginning of the Swiffer, you you may have customers or the voice of the customer who say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with throwing that pad away, that Swiffer pad. And does that bring people back to more pr traditional brooms and mops that are more reusable? Yeah. Or, you know, possible product iteration of something that's biodegradable or, you know, something like that. So that we, I go into it briefly in the book, all about uh, multi-generational project planning, right? And what that looks like. And certainly razor blades is probably the best example of, you know, how many of those next generations do they just have sitting on the shelf? You know, how many, how many right. different iterations of Crest toothpaste do they already have developed? <laughs> years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the razor blade they're going to be selling 10 years from now could go on the market today, but not before they sell us the six blade <laughs> razor then the seven blade razor. This I think there was a Saturday Night Live parody of uh, the razor yeah. with a hundred blades or what have you. Right. Uh, people can go find that on YouTube or uh, <laughs> Peacock streaming. I'm sure. Um, one of the things that's in the book, and I mean, it's it, it's interesting to me that 
some of these methods seem new. Some of these um, are time tested or predate lean even. Um, so one of those that, that was dragging my memory was the, uh, the Kano quality model. I mean, yeah. that was something that I learned about at MIT in 1999 in the context of a total quality management course. Of course, nowadays would be a Lean Six Sigma course. But right. um, tell us about the Kano model. I think that that's an interesting way of looking at different features, whether it's additional blades or the functionality of a, a smooth shave. We don't have yeah. to make it about razor blades. But, uh, but tell us about the Kano model, because that's something yeah, that a lot of people don't know. I, I've always called it Kano. Uh, that's that's just my Midwestern sure. accent coming out, the, yeah. the hard A. So, yeah. um, but Kano, I'm sure sounds way K more. It sounds maybe, way more Japanese to say Kano. I'm K A N O. I say yeah. You can say um, it your your way. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'll say the Kano model uh, or Kano model is, I think, one of the coolest ways to think about how we uh, deliver value in terms of products. So essentially. Um, you know, Google, if you're listening to this, Google what, what the Kano model looks like, but essentially it's um, a coordinate plane. And on the X axis is customer status. Nope. Uh, it is product performance, which is essentially, you know, how well does that product perform? And on the Y axis, you have customer satisfaction. And the idea here is that um, you're going to have different product and different attributes of a product that fall into different categories of this uh, coordinate plane. So some things we'll call table stakes. Um, you know, we, we can talk about all the things we want in a vehicle, uh, but we probably won't even consider that the vehicle turns on or that it's reliable or, you know, that it, it passes emission standards. These are things that we're not even interested in the vehicle or, or the product if they don't meet our table stakes. Um, on the opposite on the spectrum, we have things that we call delights, which are things that they don't even have to operate well. They're, they're literally bells and whistles that delight us just by having it. Um, I, I think now if we use, continue using the vehicle analogy, um, you know, assisted parallel parking, right? That, that's something that I don't know how well it works. Um, you know, driver, you know, driver assist, um, where we've got things that kind of help us uh, assisted braking. These are things that we're not quite ready to say that it's autonomous driving or it's autonomous vehicles. It doesn't work uh, to that extent yet, but we're still delighted by their inclusion. Um, and then uh, we also have what I would call performance attributes. These are things that more is better, more horsepower, more torque, more miles per gallon, more cargo loading, bigger is better uh, in, in essentially th this case. Uh, and then the final part of the, the Kano model is that uh, as time moves through this, um, all of these things start to, start to shift towards table stakes. So um, we probably would expect all new cars to have power windows, um, probably remote start as well. These are things that used to delight us in the past, but now we're not even considering purchasing a vehicle without these things. They're just yeah. built into the, to the yeah. unit. Yeah, um, I think of thinking of no. I think it's a good description because I, I think my my remember my memory of uh, the Kano model is this recognition that not everything is a linear function. That there yeah. are some some attributes that have diminishing returns. There are some attributes that would become then a delighter, um, in, in that they might surprise a customer. So you can think of uh, razor blades, for example. Like in the past, it might have been a delighter. 
I'm, I, I'm old enough to remember um, razors being advertised as like, you know, no nicks or cuts. And that's probably now table stakes on a modern razor that you're not yeah. having to attach pieces of toilet paper, to clean next to your face or use one of those stip, was it called styptic pencils that, that stops the bleeding. And then it might be a delighter when uh, the razor blade either has an exceedingly long life, which is maybe bad for the business model of uh, the, the razor blade company, but there, there are other features like, Oh, well, a moisturizing strip. Oh, now that's I right. need to go through the step of putting on aftershave if, if, if that's so effective. And right. Um, the flex ball as well. Right. Yeah. But then I think, you know, it's important to think of um, yeah. You think of different cars and different customers, like, you know, the thinking of the range on electric vehicles, you know, yeah. there's uh, a, a new competitor uh, to Tesla called lucid. Um, Lucid Motors, I interviewed um, back earlier in an episode, uh, Keith Champion, who's one of the key um, Lucid production system people. He's a former Toyota person. So Lucid you know, says, well, we've got the longest battery range of a vehicle the size of a, a Tesla Model 3 has like a 500 mile range. Well, wow. you think, wow, yeah, that's that's a delighter. That's even longer than uh, the range on a, a Tesla. And in Elon Musk, it's hard to tell how much of this is him playing defense or saying, well, yeah, I've seen tweets, of course, there's always a tweet of Elon Musk <laughs> asking like, well, how long does the range really need to be? And right. I, you know, maybe, maybe he has a point where once you hit a certain certain threshold, bigger range maybe isn't more delighting to the customer. Right, right. If, if people are, I mean, isn't that kind of the business model too, is they say, well, everybody's using these as commuter cars as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're only driving 60 miles at most uh, on a, on a given day. So they don't need the charge. That, that was certainly the argument for some electric early electric vehicles that had a hundred mile range or, right. or, or less. So, um, yeah, so people can, and there's a diagram, people can Google, uh, Kano model and, um, learn more about that there. I think that's a, a really interesting framework and that's, that's a phrase I hadn't seen in a while. I think it's cool. I think that's one of the yeah. coolest things. It's a very useful model. Um, another section of the book, um, there's a phrase here, and I'm going to tell a story real quick about it, what, what, what it reminded me of. Um, see a snake, kill a snake. Now, do you, do you remember, this might be, um, uh, I don't know, if you remember, there was a famous Ross Perotism about General yeah. Motors and snakes. I'll let you tell it then. Well, um, no, I'll let you tell. I'll just say it's, it was quoted in the book. That I, I had a, uh, yeah, I had a right. um, footnote for it, yeah. There's there, there there's an old Ross Perotism. I'm not going to try to do. Uh, I'm hearing the voice, or at least I'm hearing the Dana Carvey impersonation of the Ross Perot voice of like, you know, most companies when you see a snake, you kill a snake. At General Motors, when they see a snake, they form a committee on snakes or something right. of that effect, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's um, you know, I, I think there's oh, ethos to lean there too. Is I think we get very sometimes tied up in doing the right tool and doing a fishbone diagram and, you know, this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's just so easy to, to just say, no, let's, let's stop doing that. Um, I, I've recently uh, started watching reruns of Bar Rescue, um, mm -hmm. which if anybody's seen that with a background in lean, that guy goes in there and essentially eliminates waste and creates standards and, and saves, you know, saves bars. That's, that's the whole, that's the whole if, gist of the show. If, if they're willing to be saved, but yes. Yeah. But, but that, I mean, that's, that's his toolbox, right? So he goes in there, he sets standards, he eliminates waste. And I, I think a lot about that is just, 
he's seeing the issues and he's just saying, stop it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's, you don't have to have anything more elegant than that. And I, I think that's something that we often lose because we like our tools and we, and we like being in the know, but sometimes and, it's and just some, that easy. And sometimes we're like forming committees and talking about an idea instead of, um, Taking action. Yeah, I, I would love to interview John Taffer, the, the, the creator, <laughs> the host of Bar Rescue someday, because like especially like in earlier seasons, he they would talk literally about what he calls bar science. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was it was not just like you said, having standards and eliminating waste. Um, but a lot of it, I think, was a, a pretty deep understanding of customer needs of like what kind of, you know, he, I remember one thing he would really emphasize a lot was, you know, certain types of bar environments that a, a woman is not going to feel comfortable coming into right, right. alone or in a small group. And he would say like, I, I don't know if this sounds dated or sexist, but um, in a lot of cases, a bar with more women will attract more men and that's good for business. And you want a place where all your customers can feel comfortable. And we can think about that in a lot of different ways, but um, there's, there's, you know, the, the bar that the, the owner wanted to have. And then there's the bar as you, you know, you're talking about earlier that customers would want, like the one where it was like a pirate themed bar. Yeah. And I yeah, think, yeah. The, I think the market for a pirate themed bar was very narrow and very <laughs> small, but I think that's one of those where John Tapper changed it to something more mainstream and the owners changed it back to a pirate bar. Right. Right. I, I, I had watched one and it was like, essentially this guy was into motorsports and he hurt himself and then he, you know, somehow, and then he kind of created a bar that was uh, a trophy to his, to his former glory days. And, you know, essentially I think he came in and said, what you you want, you want this statue to yourself or do you want a market driven bar that makes money? And and I, I think, you know, I, I think a lot about the goal, right. Um, The gold rat book, you know, what's, what's the purpose of the business? What's the goal? It's to make money. Everything else, you know, put that aside. And if if you're not, you know, aligning what you're doing to that goal, you're in the wrong business. A um, couple of things I, I think are fun to talk about here. Um, when it comes to um, ideation, um, either working with customers, working with uh, development teams, um, I you know, there, there's this three word question: How might we? Or how yeah. might we with additional words? after the fact. Um, t- tell us why that's a powerful question. Yeah, this is this is something that I think goes back to Silicon Valley. It certainly popularized the Silicon Valley if, if it wasn't created there. But um, a group called IDEO, which um, Google IDEO.org, they are um, pretty much the best uh, organization at human-centered design. They've designed everything pretty much uh, in Silicon Valley for the past 20 years. Um, they have this, this uh, phrase, how might we, which is really to help that brainstorming environment. Like we said beforehand, um, you can't brainstorm and evaluate at the same time. You can't come up with new ideas if you're being, um, if you're afraid of being evaluated and being proved wrong. Um, so how might we has, it has just a very neutral tone to it. We're not saying, could we do it? We're not saying, should we do it? Or, or ought we do it? Um, we're just giving this possibility of, how might we make the, the product better? Um, you know, how might we serve this, uh, you know, segment of customers uh, without, um, you know, ostracizing another uh, segment? Like, like Mark was saying with uh, Bar Rescue, right? How, how, can, how might we uh, attract more females into the bar without, um, you know, betraying our, our core loyal customers? 
Um, so that, that phrase of how might we is very important. And um, there's, I think, a lot of psychological stuff behind it as well. But really, the idea is that it's a neutral phrase to just invite people into possibilities of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I've been exposed to that phrase. Um, uh, Joe Swartz, who's at the Franciscan St. Francis Health System in Indiana, he was my co-author on the Healthcare Kaizen books that we did. And a few years ago, I had a chance to visit their organization. And even in the context of Kaizen and continuous improvement, they were using that phrase a lot. It's awesome. How might we do such and such? Because it, it, it keeps the focus on the problem to be solved, the, the, the patient right. need or family need to be met, where I think a lot of times people get defensive and, and there could be value in this. People will throw out, well, here's all the reasons why we can't do it. Right. Sometimes I think it's helpful to turn it to, well, how might we make that possible? What would be necessary? What would have to be true? And and, and I think that's kind of a related question you hear sometimes in strategy or entrepreneurship. Um, If if we're at the point of having an assumption, it's like, well, what what would have to be true to make this then a success? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a great point um, about that natural propensity to say, oh, actually we can't, or, you know, we already tried that and, you know, Mm -hmm. We can't do that because of these reasons. Oh, that's that's not what we're asking here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then one other thing I was going to ask you, because um, I've seen this come up also uh, in the context of psychological safety in an organization. So if you're having a meeting, if you're having a discussion, this is bound to happen um, where you, there's there's a risk of groupthink. So oh, yeah. tell us about, you write about this in the book, The Devil's Advocate Role. Yeah. Um, the, so in this portion of the book, there's several different ways. Essentially, we're getting at this idea of, again, creating an inviting environment, <laughs> an inviting environment um, where it's okay to fail, where it's okay to um, challenge the status quo. And a lot of times it's not just people um, not giving out ideas, but it's also this issue of people giving out an idea and then everybody converging on it and saying, yep, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're after. And again, when you think about convergence versus divergence in this situation, we're not trying to converge on, on a agreed upon. We can do that later, but for now, let's just, you know, come up with new ideas. Um, one way to do this is essentially exactly what you were saying earlier is um, you have to have a devil's advocate person to say why something actually can't happen. Um, and, and it, what it, the purpose of it is to challenge the status quo and say, challenge our assumptions. Are, are you sure that that's true? That won't work because of this, this, and this. And, um, you know, it's important. It's a very delicate position to have and to play with uh, in a group because people might take exception to somebody playing that role. So it's very important to kind of uh, brief the group on on this person's role to you know, clearly define that that's what this person is doing. They're not here to, to badger people and, and to make it difficult. They're really here to help us grow and um, expand our horizons. And I've, I've even seen some things where they've said that um, people will still kind of have a negative reaction to that person, even when they know that that's the role they're playing. Um, so it, it's, it's a delicate thing, but it's still a tool to be used. And I wanted to inc- incorporate that to say, you know, buyer beware, but this is something that can really benefit you guys and, and help you all out. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think it's a matter of having a balance where if we're trying to have most everybody oriented around how might we. Right. One other explanation I've heard for having that devil's advocate role is 
Um, I mean, a couple of things. Yeah, it forces you to challenge assumptions, you're saying. And then um, it gives permission or it lays the groundwork for somebody else to speak up when otherwise yeah. they might think, maybe I'm the only one that has concerns, so better to keep my mouth shut. Well, that that's that's not helpful. Um, right. We, we want people to feel comfortable and safe speaking up. That's right. That's right. It's it's about generating good ideas, um, you know, and, and that's just one way to do it. So final question um, about the book. Um, and again, our guest today is Michael Parent. The book is The Lean Innovation Cycle, a multidisciplinary framework for designing value with lean and human-centered design. Um, so innovation um, is, is a, a word that maybe means different things to different people. It's a, it's a common, it's a popular phrase, even if organizations aren't really in, into continuous improvement, they all say we wanna be innovative or that we are innovative. Uh, you know, strategy is an important uh, topic for, for businesses. So how, how do innovation and, and strategy fit together the, the, the way you see these frameworks? Yeah, I, I, um, I think I take probably a less than traditional approach in it. And um, essentially, I, I think innovation is always subordinate to strategy. I think a lot of businesses now really want to be, you know, disruptively innovative. I'm, I'm going to be so disruptive that it's going to you know, penetrate new markets and, and we're going to create something new that we've never done before. And I really have about two or three chapters cautioning against this kind of thought. Um, and, and I use a lot of business examples to, to kind of showcase this. So um, in a nutshell, I would say, yeah, I, I think innovation is a business activity that needs to be subordinated um, to a greater strategy. And there are different ways that you could engage in innovation, you know, architectural innovation. How am I going to redesign um, you know, a printer to be more user-friendly versus office-friendly um, versus kind of this disruptive thing where I'm going after a new market. And I, I think there are different um, reasons a business would pursue one or the other. Um, I'll mention two examples. Uh, I, I'm also a little bit um, skeptical of, of the first mover advantage. Uh, and I use the example of TiVo, um, this, this great product of the late 90s that totally, you know, penetrated the market and there's nothing left of it. Um, be, because they didn't pursue, um, you know, the, essentially the first mover advantage that they thought they had uh, did not pan out over just a very, very short number of years. Um, and I'll also say in terms of disruptive innovation, uh, Apple in the 90s had this, this huge product portfolio, um, all, you know, very segmented, very disjoint, um, whereas Microsoft had one product, uh, the Windows operating system, and they innovated around that. Uh, and they kind of pivoted around that and they built strategy around that. And you can kind of see um, as you talk about, you know, subordinating strategy to innovation or, or excuse me, subordinating innovation to strategy um, versus just pursuing innovation as your strategy. And it, it really took until the iPhone, which is essentially a new operating system to compete against Microsoft before Apple was, was even a twinkle in their eye. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of cases where Apple is a first mover. I think, you know, the idea of a touchscreen smartphone yep. was controversial uh, at the time, but then there are a lot of products where they by no means have been uh, a first mover. Think of uh, smartwatches, yep. uh, uh, touchscreen laptops. They're not even a mover there. My, my wife has a Windows Dell touchscreen laptop for work and any fingerprints on my laptop or because she has tried to also touch screen. <laughs> That's right. And, touch and when, screen you, scroll. 
when you start thinking about that too, it, it is all centered, you know, all those things that they were doing was very much centered on their iTunes software, mm-hmm. right? You could, you really couldn't do anything uh, with Apple. I don't, I don't have anything Apple right now, but I, I still believe it's the case. You can't do a whole lot without that core, it, uh, may, maybe some, not now, but certainly. Some of that's changed a little bit, but okay. it used to be, yeah, updating the phone, backing it up, syncing it. That was all done through iTunes software. Now some of it can just happen natively with yeah. the phone as your only device. And I think, I think maybe they got feedback about that. Um, one other thing that comes to mind, I mean, I've, I've been an Apple uh, laptop user for, for over, uh, over 12 years. And um, there was a generation where they did away with what were, to me, incredibly useful ports as somebody who travels and consults a right. lot. They took away the HDMI port and they've taken away regular US, regular, to me, regular size, um, traditional size USB ports. And um, I think there was a leader, there was a leadership change in Apple. And, and I think some people came around where I think customers were saying, I don't want to attach three different adapters to my right. computer to do very basic things. Um, so Apple has kind of come back to me, you know, from, from the, the voice of this human user. Uh, I, I think it's more human-centered design for at least how right. I use the laptop. Well, wasn't, wasn't it as well, too, uh, that they got rid of the, um, I see you're wearing AirPods as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They got rid of the um, phone jack or the headphone jack in the, yes. the iPhone. And I believe the reason for that was that was the limiting factor in making it thinner and smaller. And that was one of the reasons. So, you know, you've, you've got a lot there. You've got the voice of the customer. Mm-hmm. You've got new product development. You've got design constraints on your existing yeah. products. So, um, yeah, they know what they're doing. I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing. It's, for sure. and it, it's, it's a tough balance <laughs> back to the point from earlier of not every, the voice of every customer is not the same. That's right. So, um, so the customer, I was going to ask you one, one cla- last question about the book. Who, who do you think is the, the, the typical target customer for your new book? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say the typical customer is we're looking for people who are quality professionals, people who, have a background in Lean and Six Sigma already, or at least an interest and in, in basic knowledge of it. I don't think you could pick up this book without knowing a thing about Lean and Six Sigma and get um, a whole lot out of it, to be perfectly honest. it's it, That's just not what the market of the book is. So um, if you do have a background in quality, if you do have an interest in product design and, and really understanding empathy and delivering value to customers, I think it's a great approach to, to really learn new tools and new frameworks of understanding to, to benefit the customer and, and the quality movement as well. Well, I hope people will check it out. Uh, congratulations, Michael, on, uh, on getting the book over the finish line, not just getting it written, but congrats on uh, it being available. So people can, uh, they can find the book on Amazon. Um, they can also buy the book and I'll make sure there are links in the show notes. Uh, Mike, Michael, where, where's the best place for people to find you online? Yeah, so I am findable on LinkedIn. If you search Michael Parent or Michael Parent Consulting Services, I will pop up. Uh, I also have a consulting website, my personal website, which is sixsigma-consulting.com. And then if you hit backslash books, you can go find my book, which is available through the website on PayPal. And I'll say I get a little bit bigger of a cut if you do it through me. So um, (laughs) I'm not too proud to say that. But uh, it's, it's you know, okay. Please. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's usually better for the author to buy the book directly from the author if you can. I've experienced that as well, especially if somebody wants to buy 
a bunch of copies for the organization. Um, go ahead and reach out to Michael and you, you can probably do signed copies even then if they're buying through you, right? Absolutely. So uh, again, our guest um, here at the second time on the podcast, Michael Parent, uh, Michael Parent Consulting Services, the book title again, The Lean Innovation Cycle, a multidisciplinary framework for designing value with lean and human-centered design. So Michael, again, congratulations. Thank you for being here and, and sharing um, a little bit about human-centered design and the connections. And um, again, I hope people will go check out the book. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.